When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hey, it's a happy, happy, happy Rico because the New York Mets won a series against the San Diego Padres. The New York Mets won a homestand, winning four out of six games, and they go west above 500. And there are games once in a while, even games in the middle of April, that will swing your emotions in a very serious way. And so far through this baseball season, we're only 13 games in, it feels like the Met fan, myself included, has been very, very hot and cold. A bad loss, we start to freak out. A good win, we start to feel better. I think that the balance of this homestand, the balance of this series, the feelings we were going to have going into what's a challenging 10-game road trip was all on the line on Wednesday afternoon. Because if the Mets had lost to the San Diego Padres and there were moments on Wednesday afternoon where it certainly looked like they would, I think that there would be 40 hour, 48 hours of strife, 48 hours of this lineup isn't any good, when the hell's Verlander coming back, when are the kids coming up? Not that we won't do those things anyway, we will, but it would have been said in a much more negative light. The fact that the Mets won a series against undoubtedly a good team I think we all agree on that. So you can't even say they beat up some crappy opponent. They won a series against an undoubtedly good team. They pitched incredibly well, which we'll get to. I think it has to make you feel good. Doesn't mean this team doesn't have any flaws. Doesn't mean there's nothing to complain about. We may spend a majority of the Rico talking about negatives. I fully acknowledge that. But the Mets won a game. They won a homestand. And from that standpoint, from a win-loss standpoint, you have to feel good. And that's not to ignore all the negatives we may get to, but they won a series against the Padres. They're above 500. And I don't know about you. I feel good. Like I'm in a, I'm in a jovial mood because this was on all a very successful homestand. Am I wrong, Pete? You're not a hundred percent wrong, but you're, you're a little I, I wrong, wrong about it. I mean, listen, I mean, the the goal is to continue to win series, which we have. So so that's good. I mean, we're, what, three out of four so far in the series. We did get sw swept by Milwaukee, but okay, minus that, we're three out of four. But there's a lot of questions and a lot of frustration. And it's it's not just the, the basic complaints. It's now boiling from last year. And there's a lot of things that we've been clamoring about where it's a lot of the young kids, like you said, um, Buck now has been over managing or under managing or be it like he Buck is going to be more criticized than he ever was because last year was a, a, everyone was praising every move this year. It's different story, dude. Well, let's get to it because I'm going to rip you for something and I'm going to save it because me and Pete went to game two of this series. We sat side by side. And so when you're watching a live game with somebody, you see their emotions right as it's happening. You know, no Monday morning quarterbacking. 
we're quarterbacking, quarterbacking as it's happening. We're giving live opinions. And Pete said some bizarre things. So I'm going to get on you about that. But we'll okay. do that when we discuss game two of this series. Let's go right back to the beginning. And there's going to be a lot of positives and negatives as we go through these three games. We start with Monday night with Max Scherzer on the mound. And the way I kind of felt going into this game was not that, you know, his Met legacy's on the line, <laughs> you know, not that, you know, what kind of season he's going to have is going to be determined by the way he pitches Monday. Uh, I don't think there was anything more on the line other than if he doesn't pitch well, we're going to boo you. Something as simple as that. You know, the Mets are coming off of a series win, but losing the final game of that series on Sunday. And you're looking for Scherzer to pitch like an ace. You know, that's kind of my attitude going into Monday night. I want to see Max Scherzer look like Max Scherzer. And I'm very mixed about what he did on Monday because at the end of the day, he didn't give up a run. You pitch five innings. It's not enough innings. I think we all agree. But you don't give up a run. That's not bad. I'm not going to sit here complaining about a guy who did not give up a run because I'm a very matter-of-fact guy. There are two things I look for from a starting pitcher. A, don't give up any runs. And B, give me as many innings as possible. Obviously, from an inning standpoint, what Max did on Monday was not enough. I mean, five innings, 97 pitches, working into trouble most innings due to control issues and not really being able to put guys away. I think that was his biggest issue. Uh, it's not ideal, but he didn't give up a run. And when Max Scherzer left the game way too early, he left with a lead. So watching him live on Monday and even recapping it a few days later, it was an acceptable performance. It's not something I'm going to rip him for. He didn't give up a run. It's not something I'm going to laud him for either. It was it was acceptable. And, and one thing I tweeted about, and you mentioned it on the air too, so we were thinking alike, is that it was very Al Leiter 4 like. You know, Al Leiter in 2004, it was such a weird year from him. The Mets weren't good, in fairness. They had a bad year. Al Leiter would go five innings, so 110 pitches in basically every start. But he would go out and not give up a lot of runs. And when you look back at his final numbers from 2004, he made 30 starts, which is a win. He threw 170 innings, so not quite, you know, 210 like we would see back in the day. And he had a 3-1-0 ERA, kind of in that range. Good year, but you know, not a dominant year. Not the best of Al Leiter. You know, it wasn't quite Al Leiter 1998. You know what I mean? So if Scherzer did that over a full season, would we accept that, by the way? Just, just hear me out on that. If I told you right now, I just gave you Al's numbers, 30 starts, 170 innings, a 3-1-0 ERA. Would we hate that from Max Scherzer, Pete? No, that those numbers specifically we would not hate. If you look into it a little bit more, though, like Al Leiter pitched like almost one to one walk K ratio it was ridiculous. It was that that you cannot have. He walked almost as many as he struck out. You know what, though? Hold on a second. Here's where here's my pushback on that. If the innings and the ERA are acceptable, who the hell cares how you got there? Like. I'm telling you 170 innings and 30 starts, which is five and a third, five and two thirds. So clearly it's not good enough innings wise, right? Like we all know that's not a lot of innings per start. So clearly the guy's throwing a lot of pitches, but he's only giving up the amount of runs I described, which is an ERA in the low threes. I'm not giving him Cy Young votes, but all I care about is don't give up runs 
and give me innings. If you're okay with 170 innings and you're okay with the ERA, why does it matter how we got there? Yeah, I guess if his whip is two, it doesn't make a difference as long as he gets out of the inning. It's true, though. <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm mixed about this because I think the answer most people would have about Max Scherzer's numbers this year would be, do they get to the playoffs and what does he do then? That that's how you're defined. Because look at last year when Max Scherzer pitched last year, he was really really good and at times dominant. Like this idea of well he can't dominate anymore. He dominated in September of last year. Yeah, he, he had a perfect game. He was taken out of. So it's not as if Max can't dominate. It's that yeah over the last five starts we've watched him make, uh, the last two of the regular season, obviously the first three this year. No, he's not dominating. No one's suggesting he has over those five starts. But it's not like he hasn't done it. So I think Max is one of those guys that will determine based on the October success. But I looked at Monday night's game and said, okay, they needed a lot out of their bullpen, and their bullpen did a great job. Now, the bullpen goes out and blows it. Maybe we're talking about this differently. The bullpen backed it up. The Met offense was able to eventually break through because they had a lot of frustrations in that game as they've had throughout this series. And they won. So I thought Max on Monday, it was fine. It was it was okay. It wasn't bad. It wasn't great. Do I want more from him? Are we expecting more from him? Absolutely. And Scherzer comes with the baggage of his resume. And what I mean by that is when you have the resume he has, which is Hall of Fame worthy, and you're making $45 million a year, and you've done little for us, right? This is all what you did elsewhere our bar for you is going to be very high. And I, I feel it too. But I thought Monday, he did a good job. He battled. You know, it was not easy. First inning of this game, when there's two on and one out, and Xander Bogarts is at the plate, I'm worried. And he made a big pitch, and he got a double play. He was able to fight through it. He fought through the third inning, and his pitch count was at 64, which was nuts. He fought through the fifth inning. And you knew when he couldn't put Nola away, that was the key to this whole thing. Because Nola had a very long at-bat against him with a runner on first, two outs up to nothing. He wasn't going much further than that. You throw 97 pitches in five innings. It's just, it's over for you. But major credit on Monday to the Met bullpen. John Curtis comes into the game, works his way into trouble, works his way out of trouble. Drew Smith comes into the game, sort of the same thing. Plus, they get a great catch from Brandon Nimmo in center field. And then we saw... And there will be criticisms of Buck. We'll give Pete certainly your opportunity to rip him. But let me throw my bouquet at Buck. Let me do that. I've been critical of him on the Rico, so it's not that I kiss his ass. But there's something he does that I love. He did it in game one of this series. But what really turned me on was the way he did it in game three of this series. <laughs> you, know what I, you know what I mean. He uses, what a concept. This, this just, I, I love it. He uses his best reliever against the opponent's best hitters. He doesn't wait for an inning number to say, this is when I'm going to use a guy. So we'll get into Wednesday in a little bit. But in game one of this series, the Mets had just broken the game open. They finally broke it open. Eduardo Escobar had a sacrifice fly, but really the big hit was Lindor had the two-run double. And they turned a 2 nothing game into a 5 nothing game. But because David Robertson was already warming up, I agree with Buck. Why am I going to sit him down to then potentially have to warm him up again if the bullpen struggles? I may as well use him. Like, what am I waiting for? 
So he goes to David Robertson in the eighth inning, but against the top of the order. And I love it. No messing around, no waiting around. And David Robertson was splendid. One, two, three inning. He then goes to Adam Adovino in the ninth inning, a trend we'll talk more about, and he gets the job done. The Met bullpen was really the story of Monday night's game because, yeah, the offense got a big hit from Jeff McNeil. Big credit to him because the Met offense can be very frustrating at times, as they certainly showed in game two of this series. But the bullpen was awesome. Curtis, Smith, Robertson, Adovino, the Mets win the opener. They shut out the San Diego Padres, and something happened in this game that I never thought I would ever see. And I'm not talking about the two infield hits. That was crazy, I know. Tomas Nito, right after Luis Guillorme lays down the bunt. Yeah, it's amazing. We all get that. But something happened in this game, Pete, that had never happened in my life. And I have seen thousands of baseball games. Never happened before. You want to guess what it is? I I don't even know where to start. Um you- It was record-breaking. I set a personal record in this game. And again, thousands of baseball games. Something happened on Monday, and I couldn't believe it when it happened. I said to my friend who I took to the game that night, my friend Dennis, I said, I can't believe this happened. Did you? Was it the quickest game you've ever seen? Two hours and 38 minutes was not the quickest game I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen quicker. So... For many, many years, I, like most Met fans, was upset. We were obsessed with the no-hitter. Just obsessed with a no-hitter. Where there'd be a fear in my mind of missing a Met no-hitter. And obviously those those fears were kind of eased a little bit when I was in the building for Johan. So I saw the Mets' first no-hitter. And after that, it's all been more relaxed. You know, I wasn't there for the combined no-hitter last year, but that's okay. But I've always been no-hitter obsessed to the point where I know about no-hitters immediately. I don't wait around. Like, I'll make a joke about her into the game. Okay, no no no-hitter today. If it gets to the second inning, I'll notice it. Like, I know and pay so close attention to Met no-hitters, even after the Johan no-hitter, that it's always on my mind. Right from the get-go. Until that first inning is recorded, it is always on my mind. Until Monday. First inning. They didn't get a hit. Second inning. Didn't get a hit. Third inning, didn't get a hit. Fourth inning, didn't get. And I have no idea. I'm sitting there as the fifth inning starts with a no-hitter. This is not like me. I'm the one who's like, whoa, no-hitter, 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 no-hitter. I had no idea. So when Hassan Kim comes to the plate with one out in the fifth inning, as Max is trying to get through the fifth, he gives up this line drive to center field. As the ball is traveling in the air, my buddy says, "Uh, no, no hitter tonight. And I look at him like, what? (laughs) I said, what? I looked down at my scorecard and I said, holy shit. Like, there wasn't a hit. You're telling me Ha-Sung Kim's base hit in the fifth inning was the first hit of the game? And what made it even crazier is they didn't give up their second hit until the ninth inning. So as the ninth inning is starting, I said to my buddy, does this feel like a one-hitter? Because it doesn't. And obviously a big part of that is there were six walks. So I think those base runners make it easy to forget. But for me, as someone who's been obsessed with the no-hitter my entire life, I was stunned how 
I did not realize there was any bit of a no-hitter until it was too late. Part of it, too, is, and I was sitting next to you, and you talked about this, there's, with the pitch clock, there's not a lot of downtime. So you yeah. probably can't go and re- uh, look at this and be like, oh, wow, look what's going on, this, that, the other thing. You are so locked into just putting down the facts on your scorecard, you probably just totally missed it. That could be it. Maybe I was distracted. Maybe I was so engaged in my discussion with Dennis about AEW booking that I got distracted. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was strange. I, I think it's a combination of a few things. I think the amount of base runners is always, it throws you off a little bit because Max wasn't dominant. He wasn't, but he got the job done. The Mets won the game, which made me feel good. Nice bounce back from Sunday's game. And now you're in a spot where find a way to win one of these next two games against lefties, which scares me because I don't love the Met lineup against lefties, win one of these next two games, and you win the series. And now we get to Tuesday night's game where Pete Hoffman joined me. It was Rico Bronia night out at City Field as the Mets were taking on the Padres. Really a gorgeous night. It was 70 degrees out. It was, it was beautiful. And to the credit of David Peterson, David Peterson, I really thought through his – best start of the season. And it's unfortunate that he made the one mistake that he did in that fifth inning when he gave up the double to Manny Machado that really did it in because I thought, and you got to remember who they're facing. Now the Mets are facing a good offensive team. This isn't the Marlins anymore. This is the San Diego Padres where when you look up and down this lineup, especially on Tuesday night's case, because they put their right-handed lineup in, which I think is more dangerous because Grisham isn't leading off. Nelson Cruz, who's been crushing this year. I know you love that. You put him in the lineup. So you're looking at Bogarts and Machado and Soto right out the gate. That is a challenge for David Peterson. I mean, you could talk about their bottom of the order has weaknesses. And let that be a reminder, by the way. And this is not to defend the Mets because I don't want to defend their bottom of the order. I just want to make a point. There's a lot of bad bottom of the orders in baseball. Now, San Diego Padres are a team that I think have a chance to go to the World Series. Pete thinks they have a chance to go to the World Series. And sure, they're missing Fernando Tatis Jr., which will change things. But were you scared of their bottom of the order? Hassan Kim, uh, Nolo or Camponsano, take your pick behind the plate. Trent Grisham, Brandon Dixon, Rougenetto, Dort. I mean, take your choices on which lineup you want to look at. But they were not intimidating six to nine and Cronenworth isn't off to a great start either. So, and, and I think we all agree the Padres have a good lineup, but that is not a fearsome bottom of the order. It's a reminder that most teams don't have fearsomes bottom of the order. There are some that do the Atlanta Braves do a lot of teams, the Phillies bottom of the order right now. Yeah. That that's scaring you. It's, it's a reminder that a lot of these teams are flawed. I, and just before we go continue with the, the, the second game, I, I have to just throw that out there. A lot of people and Mets fans alike are criticizing this Mets lineup overall. And I can't fathom it. I understand the lack of power. I can't criticize that. But as far as a veteran lineup, a good, consistent lineup, hitters, a, like we actually still have one of the better lineups in the league. It may not show right now on paper, but it's also game 12 or 13. Well, I don't think anything's changed from last year in terms of what this offense is. To me, they have five really good offensive players 
that you'd like to line up one through five. Brandon Nimmo, Starling Marte, Francisco Lindor, Pete Alonso, Jeff McNeil. I mean, I put those five, I'm not saying they're better than the Padres five by any stretch, but I put that five up against a lot of teams or to, to at least match it. So, yeah, I think that they are what they were last year, which is a team that can be in the top five offensively in Major League Baseball. They get talked about as if they're trash. And I think a part of why they get talked about that way is because they're not off to the greatest start. They've left small countries on base. And the game we're talking about is exactly what happened. I mean, you look at game two of this series against Ryan Weathers. They left countries on base. And this has been a problem. And clutch hitting is, you think it evens out. Like, that's your hope. Ah, it'll even out. 2020 was such a short season, but 2020 was so freaking weird in that the Mets hit. They got on base plenty. They could not get the big hit. The big hit eluded them all season long. I felt like last year, a part of why they were fifth in baseball and run scored is that they got the big hit. They got the big hit more times than not. So you look at game two of this series, and we put Peterson aside. We talked about how well he pitched. Not going to get into the details. The Mets start this game against Ryan Weathers with a walk, a beautiful bun single by Marte, and another walk. You have the bases loaded and nobody out with Pete Alonso and Mark Canna coming up. The fact they did not score a run is a crime. And Pete Alonso had a difficult at-bat. He was mad that the, I think it was the 0-1 pitch he thought was off the plate. It was called a strike. He's behind 0-2. He works the count full to 3-2, and and he gets overly aggressive. And I think it was a changeup in the dirt he swings at, which right there, now that should not kill the inning, but Pete Alonso, bases loaded, nobody out, can't make freaking contact. That's problem number one. Marcana falls behind, hits a tailor-made double play. And right off the top, you're facing a young guy in Ryan Weathers. You have him on the ropes, and you do nothing. You do nothing. And then you go to the fourth inning. They get a leadoff hit by Lindor. They get a bloop single by Alonzo. Again, you are set up. You have first and third and nobody out. You got you to make that a big inning. And Pete Alonzo gets picked off. And we'll spend more time on this later because – Hoff and I were talking about this at the game. That pickoff's going to hurt Alonzo's war. I tell you that right now. <laughs> we spent a couple of innings yeah, talking about wow. Pete's war. We'll get to that. But that can't happen. Like, I love Pete, but that cannot happen. First and third, nobody out. You can't get your ass picked off. Now, to the credit of Marcana, he gets the sacrifice fly, and at least the Mets get a run across. But that's all they did. Their offense was limp after that. And they had opportunities. At first and third, nobody out. You only score one run, bases loaded, nobody out. You don't score any runs. That's when you lose the game because you can't expect after getting four scoreless out of your bullpen the night before, and you know with Peterson, you're not getting more. In a perfect world from Peterson, you're getting six. In a perfect world. They ended up getting five and two-thirds, which wasn't far off. You think you're winning a one nothing game with David Peterson and the Met ball? There's no way you're winning a one nothing game. And Peterson, who had a real good shot to get through trouble in the fifth, nursing the one nothing lead. There's first and second one out. Alonzo makes a great diving play, which should increase his war. And then he's battling Manny Machado, and Manny just hooks that line drive, stays fair, two-run double. They're down 2-1, to one, 
And that's really where the game got frustrating because they're down two to one now. They're in the Padre bullpen facing Brent Honeywell and Luis Garcia and Stephen Wilson. I don't know if you heard about Stephen Wilson. Uh, he throws this really cool pitch. It's called a slaughter. I don't know if you've heard about that. <laughs> yes, it's very yeah, slutty. Very slutty pitch. <laughs> Nobody can hit. Oh, man. Um, and they couldn't hit the Padre bullpen. They just couldn't hit it. And they had a few opportunities. Eighth inning against Wilson. He's having issues throwing strikes. They're set up with two on and one out for Starling Marte. And he grounds out. And Lindor strikes out. And the Mets couldn't get a big hit. And then my favorite part of this baseball game, and obviously I say favorite very sarcastically, you're down two to one. You spend four innings, five innings, whatever it was, trying to just get a run across to tie the game. Your bullpen's doing a great job. Denny Reyes has been gets a big out, bailing out David Peterson. He pitches a good inning. Brooks Raley comes in, gets through an inning. Now you're like, all right, Dennis Santana, show me some magic. He gives up a leadoff double, and he's about to get through it. Gives up a leadoff double to Camponsano, gets Grisham out, strikes out uh, Azokar, and here he is. He's he's one out away from getting through it, and Xander Bogarts hits a freaking baseball that has not landed. The Padres didn't score a lot of runs in this series, but they hit a couple of home runs that are just moonshots. Bogarts in game two, Soto in game three. Holy crap with that one. I think I think uh, that was Santana's masturbator, the one that uh... <laughs> is that the one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and when, when Bogart hits that home run, and now you're down four to one, and you're staring at Hater in the ninth inning, game's over, right? G- game's over. But in my mind, not that the Mets are going to score two runs, but they're going to score a run because whenever your bullpen, and we saw this in the Miami series, game two of the season. When Curtis gave up a home run in the ninth, Mets it down one nothing. Now it's two nothing. And what happens in the top of the ninth? Pete Alonso, it's a home run two to one. Like it happens all the time. So of course, here, here come the Mets. They get a score. They're going to do something to make that insurance run kill you. And Josh Hader really, really struggled to throw strikes. He walks Pete Alonso. He hits Mark Canna, but Canna's swinging the freaking bat. And I don't even know what the Mets were challenging. I mean, he swung. doesn't matter if it hit him. He swung. He's out. Sit down. The worst part about that, though, was you and I were sitting there as they're challenging, and the crowd was booing the umpire as then like saying, like, oh, he got hit. He got hit. Like, the, the crowd didn't know the rules either. No one knew. People are like, oh, it hit him. He should be on first. No, he swung. And that was a killer because after that – he walks Jeff McNeil, and now the Mets have the tying run at the plate. It's like, holy crap, can you imagine? Tommy Pham comes through with an RBI single. Credit to him. He's played actually reasonably well. And here's the moment that I think all of us as Met fans, and we got a lot of emails about this, a couple emails about this, and you and I were talking about it at the time. This is the most depressing pinch hit appearance in the history of the New York Mets because you have only used – Tim LaCastro off your bench. Tim LaCastro had pinch run for Eduardo Escobar in an inning earlier. And then Luis Guillorme came in the game to play third base because you were pinch running for Escobar. So those are the bench pieces the Mets used. The Mets are set up first and second 
down by two, one out, Luis Guillorme. And Buck looks at his bench and says, oh, geez, I don't really like Guillorme against Tater, which I get. Why would you like that? And he says, well, I got one righty on my bench. I got a lefty. I got Daniel Vogel back. I'm not using him against Hader, obviously. I got Tomas Nito. You know, you know Tomas Nito, basically a pitcher hitting. And he decides to send them up to pinch hit. Now, there's uh, so many issues with this. Where do we begin? First of all, it shows the problem with this roster. Let's start with that. It shows that you have a flawed bench. If the bat you're going to go to is Tomas Nito, that's a problem. That, that's a major, major issue. And so, yeah, it's fair to look at this roster and say, geez, you're set up in a spot where you've got to use Tomas. It's not like he's pinch hitting for a pitcher. Where ah, it's a position player. It's a pot. He's pinch hitting for a human who actually knows how to handle the bat in Luis Guillorme. And by the way, I know Guillorme can't hit lefties. I get it. I know the numbers. I've looked at it. Here's the difference, though. Luis Guillorme can give you an at-bat. And that's why, number one, it shows the Mets roster's flawed. And number two, I wouldn't have pinch hit for Guillorme with Tomas Nito because I got no shot to get a hit with either guy. Here's the way I look at it. In all, in all seriousness, neither guy is getting a hit off Josh Hader. So my best option, my best chance is I'm going to have a quality at-bat and work a walk because Hayter's having big issues throwing strikes. Who do you think has a better shot to give you a quality at-bat? Luis Guillorme. I'm not trying to tell you it's a great situation. The situation blows. Like, I admit, I don't love Luis Guillorme against Josh Hayter. I am not arguing that. I'm arguing the idea that you think Tomas Nito gives you a better shot. And... The game could have ended on a double play because he tapped one back to the mound, shockingly enough. And luckily, there was that pause by Hayter. Fam got the second quick enough, throws the first base, two outs. And look, as far as the Alvarez at-bat is concerned, I think most of us are pining for him to play. I think most Met fans want to see him play all the time. He hasn't. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But you couldn't have asked for more. You get Alvarez in a spot where he can tie the game up, Second and third, two outs. He's facing Hater. I loved it because it was a, all right, you know what? This guy, we don't know if he's a major leaguer yet. We don't know if he's ready. The Mets clearly don't think he's ready. Let's throw him into the fire. So I loved it. And it sucked it didn't work. It sucks that every pitch he missed was out of the strike zone, that Josh Hader did not throw one strike. And I want to say he looked overmatched. I don't think that's fair for that at-bat. But he didn't have a good day. Went over four, struck out three times, struck out with the biggest spot on one. But this is what it's about. It's about getting guys experience. And so as he was standing up there, I wasn't very confident. But I'm glad he had that moment. And I'm glad the Mets were at least able to rally and make things interesting against Hader in the ninth inning. So no complaints about that last at bat. It is what it is. He failed. But the Nito Guillaume thing just wanted to, my head was exploding between the anger over the roster and then the anger over I wouldn't have put Nito up over Luis Guillaume. No, I totally agree. First of all, let me just say something about Alvarez. I am angry about that at bat because it was how many, what, the sixth at bat, seven at bat of the season? He played, that would have been, if he played every day, he would have had enough 
at-bats that maybe that wouldn't have been as big of a spot for him. So far, he had two two back-to-back at-bats. He was in the eighth and ninth inning in two big spots. Like, for Alvarez, he hasn't had enough games under his belt. you got to give him playing time. So that's that's the first criticism. I I want him to play. Like, I'm not arguing about that. I don't know if, well, he played on Sunday, too, or Saturday. He played Sunday. On Monday, too, would have made a difference. Yeah, but the the point is that they said that they didn't want to play him a lot because they want to ease him in. Every time they ease him in, he gets to be in this big moment. Like, what the hell? Eventually, that's not easing him in. Okay, like same thing. They brought him up with six games left to go in the season, and he's he's up against like the uh, Kenley Jansen. That's not easing a rookie into the into into the bigs. I'm sorry. Right. Anyway, that that being said, talk about the Guillaume Nito bat. I bet I'll even go back at inning earlier, which you think I was crazy for, and I'm not debating Starling Marte is a better hitter, but you have this fat chooch in in Vogelback on your bench. He is a quote-unquote, lefty DH, power hitter, and you can't find a spot for him in the lineup at all, you know you're not getting him in versus Hader. You know that. So you're telling me you can't find him the the quote-unquote protection for Pete Alonso. You tell me you can't find a spot for him? So let's go through the spots where Vogelbach could have worked, and I'll also tell you why Buck made a huge mistake that I think he corrected the following day. That's what I wanted to get on for Pete. So you knew exactly what I was getting at. Pete Hoffman sitting next to me at City Field in the eighth inning wanted a pinch hit for Starling Marte with Daniel Vogelback. I love you, bro. What are you freaking nuts? Were you yes. high? Yeah, no. But and you yes. don't even like Daniel Vogelback. I, I hate, hate him. him. You, you hate him and you want him pinch hitting for Starling Marte? But but Evan, Evan, th- this is the point of the depth of the roster. You're, you, you, ha- this is a spot, or you need to find a spot where you could use okay. your power hitters. They don't want to use them. Yeah, uh, let's let's go through it. And I'll show you the uh, positives and negatives. I'll lay out all the scenarios so everybody can make their own decision. The spot to use them is the seventh thing, because the only guys, in my opinion, in this lineup that he threw out there on Tuesday, and just to remind you real quick how it was lined up. Nemo, Marte, Lindor, Alonso. Okay. None of those guys should ever be pinched for, including Marte. Canna was the DH. McNeil, who should never be pinched for. Famine left. Escobar and Alvarez. I think that the really the only guy I'd pinch hit for is Tommy Pham. Like, am I pinch hitting for Canna? Maybe. Uh, maybe. Maybe. I put Canna up there, Pham up there. Escobar, too, because of the way he's hit. I'm not pinch hitting for Alvarez. I'm letting him play. So those are those guys. Those are the guys you'd look at and say, "All right, in the right spot, I'd pinch it for those guys." Seventh inning, that's the inning. Alonzo leads off by flying out. Now remember, the Mets are down two to one in the seventh inning, and you're right. You know, haters looming in the ninth inning. Keep that in mind. Mark Canna won out in the seventh inning. You want to pinch it for Mark Canna with Daniel Vogelback? You could. The problem, and it's a big one is that if he pinch hits for Canna in the seventh and stays in at DH, simple, in the ninth, where there's a decent chance that spot's coming up again, haters on the mound. And as we just talked about with Nito, you have no right-handed bat off the bench to go use him. So you got to think two steps ahead. The second problem is when Pham plays left field. Tommy Pham was in left field. So after McNeil singled with two outs, the Mets had a runner on first, Two outs in the seventh, Tommy Pham up, 
against Luis Garcia right-handed. Totally a great spot for Vogelback. And you could argue, you know what? I can't worry about the ninth inning. I have my shot here. Fam's playing against lefties. This is the moment to use Vogelback. And I would actually agree with you. I'd say, you're right. Here's the problem. You got Tommy Pham in left field. So if you pinch hit with Vogelback, what are you doing next? Vogelback's out the game. Can't stay in the game. He's not playing left field. You're now using Lo Castro to go play the outfield. That's what you're doing. Or you're inserting Luis Guillorme and you're moving McNeil to the outfield. When you have a lefty on the mound and Pham's the bat that's being added, universally, Tommy Pham's being added. You have to DH him. You can't play him in left field, even if his defense is better than Canna, because you lose your ability to pinch hit for fam late in the game. Because now you got these weird issues of if you pinch hit for fam with Vogelback, it's only one at bat. It's not two, because Vogelback can't stay in the game. The only position he can play is first base. And now you're forced to use another guy to come in and play the outfield. And the Met bench isn't good to begin with. So now, yeah, you're taking your one shot with Vogelback, but now you've just weakened your bet. You weakened whoever came into the game, right? Because it's probably LeCastro or Guillaume. And that's it. You used your one bullet. So what Buck has to realize, and I think he did because he did it on Wednesday with a lefty on the mound, had Canna and Pham. Basically ran out the same lineup minus Alvarez. And what did he do? He DH'd Pham and he played Canna and left. That's what he has to do. And if your argument to me is, well, but fam's better defensively, I'd say it's not worth it because look at what I just laid out. Like, what, where was the spot to pinch it? Because if it's Vogelback, he's out of the game. It's one at bat. And then when the ninth inning comes around, who's up in that spot? The answer is either Luis Guillerme or Tim LaCastro. That's it. And then, oh, by the way, you're not pinch running for Escobar because you've just used Tim LoCastro. Does all make sense? Yeah, no, it is. And which is a crapshoot. You're right. This is this is the issue. And this is why your solution of finding a way to eliminate a bullpen arm is is ideal. So that you can yes. add somebody to the I mean, and that's why people are saying, oh, well, you know, Alvarez should be a DH. He can't be a DH because no one's no one. Is a if you brought up Mikel Perez to be a backup catcher, you're killing the 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 bullpen, the bench that, that much more. It's it's a terrible situation so, right now. So so I agree with you, but apparently Buck doesn't because Buck was asked. I think it was before Wednesday's game about Alvarez yeah. being an option at DH. Yeah. And by the way, Buck really hates young players. I'm now convinced of this. Here's what he says about Alvarez being used as a DH, which opens up issues we brought up before, very similar to what I just talked about. I'd be more okay with it, more inclined than you'd think I would if he shows he's an offensive force up here, if that happens. <laughs> it's like, hey, guys, he's not that good. I'd be inclined to do it. I'd be okay with it. But can the guy show something offensively before I do it? I mean, but but the thing is, like, does anybody see how he performs in single A and double A? He was struggling, and then he figured it out, and it and it started to click. It, yeah, it, he's, he hasn't enough of bats here yet. No, I agree with you, and I'm on the side of let him figure it out up here. Now, Buck has said openly, "Hey, I'm trying to win games," and I and I get that. And Nito, look, there's going to be a lot of Nito slander. 
Nito is a terrible offensive player. There's no debate about that. He's very good defensively. And I don't want to minimize that. It's not as if Nito's just some bum. So I get Buck's point of, hey, I think Nito gives us a better chance to win because I'm not sure what Alvarez is yet offensively. And I know Nito's better defensively. I'm not arguing the better chance to win thing. I'm basically saying, hey, let's give the kid a shot. Like if he's going to be here at the major league level, let's play him. Let's give him a couple of weeks to basically play every day. No, you're right. But the thing is, like, his point may be valid about Nito being the better defensive catcher. However, we've seen Peterson pitch now three games. He's, his best pitching performance was with Francesco Alvarez behind the dish. I would – don't go crazy with that, though. <laughs> Please. Because it really that's, – that's, you know what that is, though? That's looking for something to make the point. Like you're look, and, I, and I get that. You want Alvarez to play. I want Alvarez to play, too. I think that David Peterson is fine with either guy. Alvarez is never going to have the advantage over Nito as far as calling a game is concerned. Nito is very good at that. Like we, we just need to be fair when we have these discussions. I don't think we should rip Tomas Nito for things he doesn't deserve ripping for. He's a bad offensive player. Like that's, that's the issue with him. But as far as working with pitchers, pitch framing defensively, he's very good. that's not the knock. It's more, and maybe it's just a difference of opinion here. I just want to give the kid a shot for a few weeks. Otherwise, why is he up here? would be the way I look at it. And and we'll get to game three in a second. But uh, one thing that I had an issue with again is Vogelback didn't get in that bat and they ran Nito out there again. And you have a backup catcher. You have Francisco Alvarez who could have, they could have done a sub there. And that was a spot that they didn't do again, a double play. They don't have their bench is an issue. And I think the biggest issue is kind of what you said before. And I've mentioned a lot, which is they need another bat off the bench. And I, I get it's tough when Max Scherzer goes five and David Peterson goes five, and Tyler McGill goes five, that if you're not getting seven innings out of your starters and you're using four relievers every day, you feel like you need eight relievers out of your bullpen. So I understand that. And they do right now because they're not getting longevity. Longevity. They're not getting length out of their starting pitchers, but this bench is in such desperate need of a fifth bat. It just is because this is not a major league bench. Now let's get to Wednesday's game. Uh, Very frustrating loss Tuesday, by the way, as we pointed out, I mean, just leaving guys on base, Alvarez in a big spot, the home run by Bogarts late, just, you add it all up. It was a very, very frustrating loss. We get to Wednesday's game, the finale of this series, a game that felt, I don't want to call games important in April, but I think for our psyche, it was important. Cause like I mentioned at the top of this pod, our mood for the next 48 hours as Met fans was going to be, dictated by how they do here you win the game it's a winning homestand you win the game it's a winning series it's tough to get two nuts when you just went four and two and by the way you beat a team that everyone seems to think is going to the world series like that's that's a good series win so from that standpoint there's a real swing on wednesday's game you win this game we feel good you lose this game ah this team sucks and it couldn't have started off any worse tyler mcgill Gives up a two-run, I didn't want to call it a bomb. What the hell would you call what Juan Soto did? I mean, he destroyed a baseball. I don't think it's landed. They said it was 450. I think everybody's a liar. I think it was 500 feet. 
And the Mets are down 2 nothing. It feels like old times. Juan Soto hitting bombs against the Mets. And to make matters worse, if that's not bad enough, Blake Snell puts the first two guys on base in the bottom of the first inning. Lindor strikes out. Alonzo singles, but nobody scores. Bases loaded, one out, and they do nothing. Mark Canna pops up the first. McNeil grounds out, and they literally waste a bases loaded, one out jam. The Mets numbers with the bases loaded this year have got to be putrid. They got to be bad. <laughs> They've got to be. But what I thought was so important was in the second inning, they got a run back. And that was big. Tommy Pham singles, steals a base. Tomas Nito and Eduardo Escobar blow. And Brandon Nimmo comes up with a huge RBI double. Lindor hits the home run to tie it. And by the way, this entire time, Tyler McGill is settling down. Because I really thought, even when the Mets scored the run in the second and scored a run in the third, McGill was going to implode at some point. But he got through trouble in the second, pitched a 1-2-3 third, got a huge out in the fourth inning, and pitched a really good fifth inning. And before you know it, Tyler McGill gives you five solid innings, and it's, let's call it a day. And I get why Buck was maybe eager to take him out. Uh, first of all, the heart of the order was coming up third time around, so why are you screwing around? And number two, you know with an off day, you can really unload the bullpen. Robertson's going to be available. Adovino's going to be available. Drew Smith's going to be available. Brooks Raley's going to be available. And if you got five from McGill, you figure, okay, I could piece together the rest of this game. And the Met offense is chipping away. Pete Alonzo hits a home run. They get some help by a bad uh, defense by San Diego. Tomas Nito grounds in one of the worst double plays ever. Again, bases loaded, nobody out. And is this where you wanted to pinch hit, Pete? Is this the moment bases loaded, nobody out, Nito up in the six? You want to go Vogelback? Yes, because you have Alvarez that can go in right after him. Yeah, you texted me this. I'm not I'm not going to argue with you about it because I get it. Like, yeah, let's go for the kill. Bases loaded, nobody out. Tomas Nito sucks. Like, I can't argue. I think that you're afraid sometimes in the sixth inning of unloading your bench, and you're going to have to use half your bench. I mean, think about it. You use Vogelbach. That, that chip is gone because, again, he's not staying in the game. You're now using Alvarez to replace him. And so now you're down to LeCastro and Guillaume, and it's the sixth inning when you do it. But I understand your point of you don't know how many opportunities you're going to get. It's bases loaded, nobody out. Like, go for the jugular. You know, why the hell not? Work or walk, baby. Let's go. <laughs> that would pay off. <laughs> and by the way, at the time, it's three to two, just to keep in mind. Let's have a lead. It's not a big lead. And I said to Lugie, who was at the game with me, as Nito stepped up, and I should have phrased it better because it ended up biting me in the ass. I said, Luke, if he grounds into a double play, I'd be thrilled because we get a run home. Give me that run. So what does he do? He hits a ball to third. Manny Machado steps on third and throws home and gets your, you know, your normal 5-5-2 double play. And I don't know if you saw this on TV because maybe they said it. I'm at the game. I thought Machado could have turned three if he really wanted. I thought because he was on the bag immediately. He throws the second. Nito is slower than me. They're turning a triple play. And that would have been the most Nito moment ever. That bases loaded nobody out. He grabs into a triple play. Uh, dude, I just was cursing. If they said anything, I missed it because I was just F-bombing F left and right. Like I was screaming in the newsroom like a madman.
It was frustrating. It was very frustrating. And credit to Nimmo, who I thought was the star in a lot of ways of Wednesday's game. He had the RBI double in the second, and he bails this team out with an RBI single. So even after what appears to be blowing the bases loaded, nobody outshot, Brandon Nemo comes through with an RBI single. Tommy Pham comes through with an RBI single in the seventh. And again, we saw Buck do what I love, which was I got to use my best pitcher in the biggest moment of the game. So go back to the seventh inning. This is before the Mets tacked on another run. So they're up by two runs at the time, 4-2, top of the seventh inning. You've got Drew Smith trying to work his way through the seventh. Smith, to his credit, got a big strikeout to end the sixth. Now he's being asked to start the seventh inning, gives up a leadoff walk, strikes a guy out, gives up another walk, gets Machado to fly out. So it's 4-2, to two, first and third, two outs in the seventh with Juan Soto up. This is, I love it. It's a no-brainer, but three years ago, nobody does it. The Mets have already used Brooks Raley. So who do you trust to take on Juan Soto as the go-ahead run with two outs in the seventh inning? The only guy you would, David Robertson. And when I saw David warming up in the seventh inning, ah, I was so giddy. I was saying to Lugie, this is great. This is, this is what I love about Buck. For all the heat I'm going to put on him for other things, I love this. And I think managers around baseball are starting to get it. Like, well, why am I saving a guy for the ninth inning? So he goes to him to get Soto, gets him out. That's when I had to leave the game, by the way, because we're obviously coming on after the Yankee game. Yankee game is starting to move. So when you go to one of these weekday afternoon games, I, I, I make a kind of the commitment of, I know I'm leaving early. It sucks. I hate leaving early. I don't have a choice. I got to make the show. But I picked a good time to leave, right, Pete? Right after Robertson got Soto to pop up the left field. No, it was beautiful. And 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 I and when he walked, when he went in there, I go, "This is this is perfect. This is this is what we want." And I know I knew how happy you would be, and I'm glad it paid off. I I, I got to stop making a big deal out of it. I, I make a big deal out of it because it still feels so new. But Buck showed us last year with Edwin Diaz. This is the way you manage. And I give Showalter so much credit for this because he's an old school guy. And it's such a new school thing, even though it seems so basic. And David Robertson, kudos to him. He gets Soto out, gets in and out of trouble in the eighth inning. Guy's been great. Couldn't have asked for more from David Robertson. And obviously, they then flip-flop. Ottavino pitches the ninth. He's a little shaky. He's walking Trent Grisham. He's falling behind Manny Machado. And then sort of gets lucky. Machado lines out to the double play, 4-6-3. And the Mets win the game. But a really good win. Great effort by this bullpen. And think about this, Met fans. And this is the way baseball is. Series to series, day to day. Our fears go one way. Our worries go another way. I think you walked out of this series saying, ah, offense has to do more. But a few days ago, we were concerned about the pitching. How good was the pitching in this series? You're facing the San Diego Padres. And think about what they did. They shut them out in game one. They hold them to one run in game two until the ninth, still only give up four runs against them, and then give up two runs in the finale. They gave up six runs in three games against the San Diego Padres. And to be fair, besides Scherzer, there was no Cody saying it. There was no Justin Verlander. It was Peterson, McGill, and the bullpen. Well, it's the bullpen because Peterson goes five and two-thirds, McGill goes five, Scherzer goes five. So you asked 
for, let's see, eight, 11 and a third from your bullpen. And they did the job. Let's be perfectly honest. The Met bullpen outside of the three run home run that Denny Reyes gave up in game two was marvelous. And this is not an offense to sneeze at. They didn't do this because sometimes it's easy. Ah, it's the Marlins. Yeah, it's, it doesn't get, they did it against the Padres. So for all the negatives we may bring up, I mean, that is a major positive that your pitching was able to hold down this offense to just six runs in three games. No, and this is huge because if they lost this series, I think a lot of people would have deflected and be like, well, it's the Padres. They're going to, they're going to be one of the best teams in the league. So it's okay that they didn't win the series. So the fact that they, we flipped the script with not having a great offensive uh, production as we need, but the pitching was there. Uh, that that's that's a big deal. Uh, look back where we were last year in playoffs. How we got you know ran out of town in our own ballpark. It's just big revenge for us. Yeah, it doesn't like take away what happened last year. Last year sucked. They lost the series that mattered, but they beat a good team. That's the way I look at it. I don't even equate it to last year. I look at it as the Mets won a series against a nationally contender. If you're ranking the contenders in the National League, I think there are three teams that jump out at you and exclude the Mets for a second. I think it's the Atlanta Braves, the LA Dodgers, and the San Diego Padres. And the Mets just won up. They won a series against one of them. And they're going to get a crack against the Dodgers coming up next week because the Mets now embark on a West Coast trip. A couple of things to clean up before we get to the West Coast trip. The Verlander update is he's going to St. Lucie. He's going to make a rehab start. He's not going to pitch it on the West Coast. It looks like they're gunning for some time on the homestand coming up. They take on Washington and Atlanta when they come home. I don't know if they're going to – not that it matters with Verlander, but I don't know if they want him making his debut against the Braves, maybe a kind of a softer landing spot. So I'd look, assuming there's no setback, for Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday against the Nationals, just predicting, you know, because I – I know it's Verlander, so maybe they're not afraid of that. But wouldn't you want first start back, give him a nice little soft landing spot? Yeah, you know, let, let, let him face Dom Smith a few times. <laughs> Dom's doing nothing, by the way. Everybody's got to calm down about that. He's in like 280, but he's got no home runs, no OPS. Like, let's just uh, let's stop freaking out. Edwin Diaz met the media, and Edwin seems, hey, I could come back. Hey, I'm feeling really good. It's on the table. I'll be back in October. Put it out of your mind. Not Edwin's mind. I think it's great that Diaz wants to do that. But for me as a Med fan, for everybody listening, don't think of Edwin Diaz. Edwin Diaz is very, very likely to not come back. If he does, I think that's amazing. But let there be games for him to come back too. Let's not assume October's a birthright. It's not. We're not the Yankees fans. Okay? We got we to gotta get there. That's for sure. Uh, Marte came back quick, so that was good. Only ended up missing one game. Um. Adam Adovino is doing the Carmelo Anthony three to the dome. What are we, what are we doing? <laughs> I read about that the other day. Like Adam Adovino, when he, I guess when he strikes a guy out on three pitches or he strikes out the side, he does the mellow three to the dome. What's that about? I feel like I've seen him do that in the past, but he didn't really put two and two together. Yeah. I, I never didn't really... either. He, but he has done it in the past. Yeah. Apparently, he's a Nick fan. He likes Melo. He's from Brooklyn. All right, fine. 
That's fine. All right. The, the Alonzo war thing. We have well, to get to this. Could we just, I just want to throw one more funny thing in there before Go we ahead. get to the real serious stuff. Yeah. So guess who made his debut in San Francisco today? Oh, Darren Ruff. I know he got a big RBI double. Listen, let's get this out of the way. Darren Ruff's going to do well with the Giants. All right. Let's just, let's just speak it. It's going to happen. The guy, for whatever reason, and I feel horrible because he kind of told the truth. His his father passed away right before he was traded. I feel horrible for him. And I and I get you're a human. You get traded. It's not as easy as like just flipping a switch. Darren Ruff didn't work in New York. He didn't. There are guys that just don't play well here. Joey Gallo was a recent example with the Yankees. He did not work here. I don't want to hear his comments about the media and the fans, how we're all in line. Dude, you hit 130. Okay, no, no excuses. You didn't hit. Darren Ruff needed to be released. He was. We all wanted it. We now have to accept he's going to hit for the Giants. There's a chance he's going to hit the Mets next week, too, by the way. Like, that's all on the table. And you know what? Just deal with it. It's just Joey Gallo's coming to Yankee Stadium this weekend. He may hit a home run. There's no regrets. No Yankee fan should have a regret. We shouldn't have a regret. So let's get this out of our mind about Darren Ruff. A guy could go hit 350. Do you think he was going to do it here? You all yeah. screamed and yelled that he needed to be caught. I joined you. I assured you he wasn't going to be on the major league roster. He's not. We then can't bitch about him performing. Is that fair? It's, it's very fair, but it's just very ironic that he'd go out there. And the first thing he'd do is hit an RBI double. Yeah, I know. And the, the, the Giants are like the weirdo Mets with Wilmer Flores and Michael Conforto and Darren Ryan. They got Mets all over the place. It's crazy. Who am I missing? They have somebody else. Oh, J.D. Davis. J.D. Davis. Of course. How the Mets are going to see all these guys next week. It's going to be horrible. <laughs> it's gonna be terrible. <laughs> get, get to your Pete Alonzo. I'm sorry to cut yeah, you off. Yeah. So... Pete Hoffman is on this bender, which I respect, that Pete Alonso is an MVP candidate. He really wants Pete to win an MVP. And luckily, Pete plays in the National League where he's eligible to win an MVP. Because if he was in the American League, just give it to Shohei Otani and call it a day. I mean, it's just hand in the award. Let's all move on. And Pete's very adamant about it. I, I get why. Because if you watch the Mets every day, like I think a lot of people do who listen to this, you see Pete's gotten better defensively. He's made every play this year. He's made a couple of diving plays. I don't think there's any doubt that every year Pete keeps getting better defensively. He drives in a lot of runs. He's hit a lot of home runs, not hitting for a high average quite yet. And you look at him and you say, yeah, he's, he's a tremendous player. We watch him every day. So I was saying to Pete as we were shooting the crap, the problem is, Hoff, he's got to bring the war up. And I'm not saying that for my sake, but last year, we, we spent a bit of time talking about this, that Pete's war was weirdly low. Like, there were too many guys ranked ahead of him, and I didn't fully understand it. I know that war is based on base running and, you know, obviously defense and hitting, and you factor it all together, and it's how much better would he be than the replacement player. Like, I get what it is. I don't know how it's calculated. I don't think anyone knows how it's calculated. Uh, it's calculated in different ways by different websites. But as much as I want to ignore it, the reason why we can't ignore stats like that is that people look at it. GMs look at it. Voters look at it. So if you want to ignore stats because you don't like it, which I used to do, you're doing yourself a disservice because the people that matter look at it. 
know, when Pete's trying to get a contract extension, his war's going to be brought up. So we could ignore it and say it means nothing, but we'd be denying the reality that does mean something. So I made that comment to Pete and I said, I bet you his war is really good. Now, just watching him this season, I know it's only 13 games, but check out his war. I bet you it's high. His defense has been great. He's driving in runs. How could it not be? So we look it up and his war is 0.2 or 0.2. So again, I pause and say, well, it's a counting stat. So I'm sure everybody's war is 0.2, 0.3, kind of in that range. We start looking up other players. Freaking Max Scherzer has a higher war than Pete Alonzo. Every Met has a higher war than Pete Alonzo. Eduardo Escobar. No, I'm just kidding. It's not Eduardo Escobar, but like his war, and it's only 13 games, was 150th in baseball. And I, I'm at a loss for words about this. For, for whatever reason, this metric hates Pete Alonzo. And I can't figure it out because we're watching him every day. We're watching Lindor every day, who's the war loves Lindor. Like, Lindor always has a high war. And I love Lindor's defense. I do. And he steals some bases, and that's great. But you're really telling me, watching both guys every day, that Lindor's triple Alonzo? Like, it, it doesn't make sense. And unfortunately, Pete, it's why Alonzo will never win an MVP. Sure. And it's, it's disappointing because, like you said, like, I've been overcritical of Pete Alonso's defense. And as far, as far as the Mets as a whole, their their defense has been phenomenal besides the era that uh Francisco Alvarez had the other day. They've been they've been almost flawless, you know? And and I'm overanalyzing Pete because he lost out to Paul Goldschmidt and everyone says how amazing he is. But I, I don't understand how it's possible. They both play the same position and Pete has been flawless. So what gives Goldschmidt the edge by so much? I don't know what makes in a 13-game sample size that we're at Alonzo so average. Like, you can't tell me his base running is that bad where it brings it down. It's just, it's very confusing. So I think at some point we will get a war expert on to teach us how it's calculated. Because I got to know, man. I got to know, like, I want to calculate war myself too. I want to spend one night calculating everybody's war. And I want to see how the hell we get to this, but what, whatever. I mean, it's just, it's, it's frustrating. It's sort of comical. Uh, as far as this road trip is concerned, it's going to be, a, it's going to be an interesting one. 10 games on the road, three in Oakland, uh, three in Los Angeles, four in San Francisco, the a one, they have to take advantage of. They're facing Caprillion, the former Yankee prospect. They're facing Fuji Nami, uh, the import from Japan has been awful. He has not pitched well. And they're facing J.P. Sears, another lefty. So the Mets continue their stretch of facing a lefty in just about every series. But at least they get two righties. We see Kodai Senga Friday. We see Carlos Carrasco trying to bounce back on Saturday. And we see Max Scherzer on Sunday. They will face Kershaw in L.A. So they're going to get another left-hander. And I haven't been able to fig figure out past that. So I know at least we're seeing two more lefties in the next five games, which means that same issue. Now, Tommy Pham's played well. I don't want to kill him. Like, Pham's been fine. He's actually produced. But that's when it's not, it's not the most ideal lineup when they're facing a lefty. 
My goal going into this trip, and we'll obviously do plenty of pods throughout it, including after each series, I would sign right now for five and five. I would. Two out of three in Oakland. Let's say lose two out of three in LA. It's tough to win every series and get a split in San Francisco. You do that, you're five and five. You do that, you're 12 and 11 coming home to take on the Washington Nationals. I would be good with five, five. Would you be good with five and five, Pete? I mean, it won't be the greatest split of all time, like last <laughs> year's trip, but I guess it's serviceable. It, it's, it's, I hate to say it, but like if you finish April almost 500, I'm, I'm kind of happy too. It's, it's not the way that you want to start a season. It's not like we're taking off and destroying teams and, and crushing the division, but you'll take it right now. You'll survive this month because of the, all the injuries and all the oddness in this beginning part of the season. Well, I want to make something clear. I'm not looking to be at 500 through April because the way I have this laid out is right now they're seven and six. So they're, they're game above. They go five and five out West. They're one above, but then they've got three games against Washington in their own building leading into the showdown with the Braves where they play them four times. Then I'd start to say, Hey, go win that series. Go sweep them. Now you're a couple of games above 500 heading into the Atlanta series. Then they have a really soft part of their schedule. They play Detroit, Colorado, Cincinnati, and Washington. I mean, think about that stretch. Doesn't mean they're going to win all those games, but I'd like to be a few games above 500. I'm not saying just be 500 getting out of April. I think when you have a long West Coast trip, and granted you're facing a bad team, you're facing a good team, though not off to a great start, and you're facing a team I'm not sure about. Like the Giants, I don't know. I don't know if they're any good. I'm not sure how good the Giants are. I think the Dodgers will be fine. They may not win 110 games, but they're clearly a playoff team. They're clearly a team that you may have to go through if you're trying to get to the goal we want to get to. So I think when you're on the road for 10 games, it's just, it's not reasonable to say, hey, go get seven out of 10 or else I'm pissed. I mean, I guess I could say that, but it's not really being realistic. So it's more just the difficulties of a 10-game trip. And it is the longest road trip of the year. The Mets are not playing a road trip or a longer road trip than the one they have coming up. Now, one other game, because I nailed the first one. Going into this series against Miami, we played the Alvarez prediction game. How many games will he start? And I don't know if I got each game right, but I did say he won't play Friday, Saturday. He'll play Sunday. He won't play Monday, and he'll either play Tuesday or Wednesday. So, so far, I'm batting a 1,000. I want to do, I guess we could do the whole road trip, but just for the Oakland series to start, because we will do other podcasts as we go on, I think it's going to be the same thing, Pete. I think he starts one game. I, I would guess it's going to be, I don't know, they play Friday night, Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, so I doubt Nito plays Friday, Saturday. So I'm going to go, they are facing a lefty on Sunday. I think he starts one of the one of the three games. And I guess I'll go with Sunday. I, you know what? They will play Nito back-to-back. He'll play Friday night, Saturday afternoon. They have the off day yesterday. And I think Alvarez plays one game in this three-game series. What about you? So you think it's going to be the Sunday game? Yeah, I'm back and forth about that. It's either Saturday, Sunday, but... I'm confident he plays one. Nito plays two. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I think he's gonna play two, but I'm gonna cheat here. 
he's going to catch Saturday, DH Sunday. That's a good guess. I, You know what? I was thinking about that possibility because Buck opened the door to it, but I'm still not going to, I'm still not going to say it happens. <laughs> I don't want that to happen. I want him to catch every day. I do not want him to DH because it's going to turn into a crap show, show. But I mean, I think that he's going to start to do that. I don't mind him DHing because it gets his bat in the lineup and it gets him major league at bats. I just want to remind everybody that for as much as you hate Tomas Nito, the flexibility of then pinch hitting for Tomas Nito I don't want to say it goes away, but it's less than ideal. Because if you do, you're losing the designated hitter. So I don't think you're pinch hitting for Nito unless it's desperation time, like down three in the eighth inning or something. Is Guillaume the emergency catcher? <laughs> I mean, seriously, I, who who's the emergency Just in case something happens. You yeah, I don't know. Most of the time, the emergency catcher never happens. But I'm going to go one game in Oakland, one game in L.A., one game in San Francisco. I think he's. I think Alvarez starts three of ten games on this West Coast trip, and I hope I'm wrong. I hope he's, I'm wrong. He's going to get five. He's going to get five, but he's going to get about two two at DH. He'll start three catcher at least two at DH. Uh let me get to a couple emails. I know this is a longer podcast, but guess what? There's an off day coming up on a Thursday, so there's more time to listen, and we got a lot of complaining emails so we should hear from the people let's start off with jimmy kearney it's time to pay attention to tyler mcgill he was serviceable at times good starter in 2021 he was a very good starter in 2022 to start the year he didn't have success returning from injury i agree i mean he was very good for a month got hurt was never the same he's off to a good start this year peterson kudos to him Took advantage of the opportunity and pitched well. You said in the past, Rico, you felt Peterson did enough to earn the fifth spot based on his performance last year. Perhaps you were basing it more on spring training performances. I didn't agree, but they're both in the rotation now. No, I was basing it on last year. I thought Peterson had a good year as the swing guy and deserved an opportunity to start more. Jimmy goes on. These three starts showed me McGill is a major league starting pitcher. There's nothing left for him to learn or work on a triple A. A few bumpy starts are bound to happen, and he should be given as much leeway as they've given anyone else in the rotation. Um, Yeah, I think McGill and Peterson have both, through these three starts, earned more opportunities. And the good news is, if Verlander walked through that door next week, besides getting into a, hey, what do you do with Carlos Carrasco debate? Let's see if he bounces back against Oakland. My answer would be six-man. That was my answer at the beginning of the year. That'd be my answer now. I don't think you necessarily have to make a choice between both guys. The Padres, who the Mets are facing, they go six-man. They've been doing it. They've been doing it. Uh, Let's go to Tomas, or Thomas. I'm calling him Tomas because of Nito. Before I get to the point I want to make, here's the part where I kiss both your asses. All right. Kisses our ass. And he says a lot of things that are very nice. We appreciate it. Okay. So as both of you are aware, the offense has been semi-dormant, which has left the fan base screaming for our top prospects to come up, including me. The two prospects I basically need to see by May 1st is Brett Beatty and Mark Vientos. Vientos, another home run on Wednesday, by the way. It's clear Escobar is cooked, and even though I'm not as low on vocal back as others, if he continues to offer little to no power production, it'll almost defeat the purpose of him on the team. My biggest problem is with the way the current bench is situated 
and that it'll be almost impossible to have two or more of our prospects up at once. As of right now, our bench is currently constructed as Nito, LeCastro, Guillaume, and Pham. If we call up Baby, Baby, it's almost a guarantee they DFA LeCastro, moving Escobar to the bench. I do think he's right about that. If they called up Baby tomorrow, barring a fake injury for Escobar, it's the end of LeCastro. And I like LeCastro as the weapon that he is. He's not much more than that, but I like having that weapon. And he's been great at it. He comes in a pinch run, he gets the job done. If the team wants to call up Vientos, it'll require either a DFA of Vogelback or sending down Gourmet, both of which I don't think the Mets are want or willing to do. I think it's great that the Mets have a nice core of young position players in AAA, but it's really going to take some tough decisions to bring them up. Obviously, the Mets could get crafty if they send down pitchers, but as both of you are aware, the Mets are completely unwilling to move away from four-man bench and 13 on the roster. I'd love to hear what you guys think about this problem and how it can be navigated so the young kids can make their presence known. All right. A couple of things. If you call up any bat, it's the end of La Castro. That's the easiest end. That's the most logical end. It's basically the Mets saying, look, we want offense, and to get it, we're going to give up the speed aspect that we have on our bench. And while that'll suck, I admit it's a small thing because it doesn't always change a game. I mean, go back to Tuesday night's game. LeCastro comes in, he pinches, pinch runs for Escobar, steals second base. It didn't matter. Nobody got a big hit. The run didn't score. So it's great, but you still have to drive guys in. So I agree. If you call up any of these prospects because you want to add some thump to this lineup Number one guy that's gone is LeCastro. Let's get to number two, and that's the Luis Guillorme factor. I love Luis Guillorme. If they called up Mauricio, Luis Guillorme is done. Because Luis Guillorme's value, besides his great defense, which I love, is his he's the only guy that can play shortstop. He's their backup infielder. Mauricio is the only guy that could really replace him in terms of that quality he can play shortstop he is a shortstop that's all he's doing in triple a which obviously we have a little bit of a problem with well what are we doing he should be playing the outfield so mauricio comes up guillorme goes down any prospect comes up the castro goes down if you want to call up all three of them then you are talking about dfang and eduardo escobar which I still wouldn't do, by the way, as much as I'm ready to call up Beatty and give him a chance to play most of the time, I wouldn't necessarily just get rid of Eduardo Escobar. I would try to make it work because I think he offers value as a, a bat off the bench, a guy who can play numerous positions. And we just talked about how they have no bench players as bad as Escobar has been. And he's been bad. We talked about that hater spot on Tuesday night. Oh my God, these horrible choices, Luis Guillorme or Tomas Nito. You know who I would take over both of them? Eduardo Escobar. I would. I, I get he's hitting 100, but I would. So I, I wouldn't be in a rush to DFA him, but he's right. Like, it's complicated. And we talked about this in spring training on how you can make this roster work. I, I would choose to, like you said, send Guillermo uh, down. I would send, I guess I get rid of Castro, but I would probably DFA Vogelback. 
because I think Escobar gives you that versatility. Can play any position. Not saying he even play outfield, but if he needed to, he probably could. There's a lot of flexibility with him. Vogelback is that dude who, if he's not DHing, can't give you anything else. And that's killing the team. LeCastro, same thing. Just a it's just a speed aspect. You yep. gotta get rid of these guys that can only do one thing. Yeah, it, it's gonna be interesting to see when Billy Epler, between the combination, because it's a combination of guys performing at AAA and showing they're ready, and guys not performing at the major league level, what's that moment where he makes a change? And I would hope. They don't do it when they're really struggling as a team. Right now, the Mets are seven and six. We're not panicking record-wise. Is this the moment to make that call? Is this the moment to say, all right, let's get Beatty on this roster? Because I think he's the number one guy to call up because of the Escobar struggles. Vientos was the guy that made the most sense in spring training. But again, Tommy Pham's done a good job. He hasn't failed. So right now, I think Beatty sort of moved ahead of him both guys are hitting the ball, by the way. So it has nothing to do with their performance down there. But I think Beatty's kind of moved ahead in terms of the guy that would come up here and serve as more of a need because Escobar's just been so freaking bad. So I keep on getting asked this question all the time by BT. He's like, who do you think is going to be the most valuable to the Mets? Who's the most important guy to be called up right now? But who do you think is going to be the best out of all those prospects? It's tough to say because we just haven't seen a lot of these guys. And so what I would end up doing is just based on who's the biggest prospect. You know, Brett Beatty is obviously, after Alvarez put him aside, Beatty's the biggest prospect. I think Mauricio is a shade out of the top 100 and Vientos is behind them. But I don't know what I'd be basing it on other than rankings because here's the, the reality, the truth. We watch the Mets. You know, Joe DeMaio does a great job watching all these guys. And so I certainly value kind of his prediction on it. But I'm not watching his at-bats in AAA. I'm not watching all these guys. So I would basically just do it off of what I've read and heard, which would lead towards Beatty, Mauricio, then Vientos, which isn't necessarily fair. Vientos is at the cover off the ball. I know he strikes out a lot, but they're all performing well. And that's great. And it's going to put the pressure on Billy Epler. Okay. Well, when do you make the move? Either way, long episode. We apologize for that, but there was certainly a lot to discuss, uh, not just the current state of the team, but obviously the series victory against the San Diego Padres. We appreciate you listening and emailing the pod, the RicoB at gmail.com. Certainly try to mix in more emails as we continue on. Got a big weekend against the Oakland A's. We'll certainly have a pod after the series ends, maybe mix in a couple of surprises in the meantime, but we appreciate you listening. LFGM. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.